Welcome back to Beat Seeker. I'm your host, Matt McButter. In each episode, we explore the shifting world of music with world-renowned experts and artists to take you deep, deep inside the fascinating and changing world of music technology and music discovery. And I'm your host, Mike Weider, reminding you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating if you like the episode. You can visit our website at beatseeker.fm where you'll find plenty of rabbit holes with extra content to dive into, guest backgrounds, and even a playlist with music recommendations from each of our guest episodes. Also, Beatseeker swag. You can stay current and talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BeatseekerPod. Any concert goer will tell you that good tickets are hard to come by, cost an arm and a leg, and charge an obscene amount of service fees. Ticketmaster has a firm stranglehold on the business of concert ticketing, and ever since merging with promoter and venue operator Live Nation in 2010, critics have pointed to an unfair marketplace for consumers. Here to break down the problem is Krista Brown, one of the people fighting to break up the monopoly in an effort to put an end to their unparalleled influence over the ticketing market. Chris is a senior policy analyst at the American Economic Liberties Project. Previously, Krista was a research associate at Open Markets Institute, where she focused on the concentration in the technology industry, wealth inequality, and the disproportionate effects of monopoly power on low-income and minority populations. While there, she helped draft the amicus brief in support of the FTC's anti-monopoly suit against Qualcomm. We reached her from Boston, Massachusetts. Krista, thanks for joining us on BeatSeeker. Thank you for having me. You know, so Krista, my uh, my daughter is a big Taylor Swift fan and was l- lucky enough to get in on the, the pre-sale ticket purchasing for her upcoming uh, tour. And on the day of the sale, you know, she had to go to school. So my wife uh, volunteered to be the buyer. And you probably know where this is going, but like all millions of other people, we spent half the day fighting with Ticketmaster's glitchy software, only to have a crash and kick us out. You know, no tickets, sad kid comes home at the end of the day. And now our only option is to buy tickets on StubHub where they're going for, you know, many multiples of what the the, the sticker price is. Um, you know, so it's clearly, you know, the ticketing system has been broken for a long time. And there's, you know, bad software, lack of innovation, crazy fees, you know, even crazier ticket prices. And the behemoth in this market, you know, Ticketmaster has been probably long since one of America's most hated companies. But despite that, no one from Pearl Jam to powerful senators have been able to break their stranglehold. And now we understand that you're part of a group trying to change that. And, you know, can you tell us about, you know, give us some background on the Breakup Ticketmaster campaign and your role in helping to organize it? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry to your daughter. It's unfortunately a very common story, but, uh, yeah. you know, you wish otherwise. Uh, so I work for an organization called American Economic Liberties Project, which is an antitrust think tank based out of Washington, D.C., although I'm remote. And we work on corporate abuse uh, issues on all, you know, all over the economy in every industry that has this type of issue. And of course, music is one of those. Uh, And as you said, Ticketmaster is really an ideal villain in this kind of large anti-monopoly movement because so many consumers and citizens know the the platform and the company and they come face to face with the issues of consolidated power. 
And that's what happened with the Taylor Swift saga, where there was really only one place to buy. So even if you were kicked off the platform, you didn't have a place to turn to find tickets elsewhere. And we address those issues, yeah, as I said, in many industries, from airlines to healthcare to agriculture. Um, but I'm lucky enough to be able to work on the Ticketmaster kind of situation for the past couple of years. And to get into our coalition called Breakup Ticketmaster, I actually first dug into Ticketmaster a few years ago when we were doing a report kind of looking back at the Obama administration and some of the failures of antitrust enforcement during that period of time. And one of the failures, one of the very notable fa failures, was the approval of the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger. And those are two well-known companies. You know, Live Nation was the dominant player in concert promotion, and then Ticketmaster was the dominant player in ticketing. So allowing the two to merge had a large outcry from the artist community saying, this will create an even larger monopoly in our industry, please don't do it. You know, we had people from Bruce Springsteen speaking out to the head of uh, various antitrust coalitions and um, organizations at the time in 2009. But unfortunately, the merger was approved with very few guardrails set up. And, right. um, and so that was my first kind of look at the, at the space. Come full circle to now or this summer when we launched the coalition, it was come on, coming off of two years of the uh, of COVID, where you know live events were pretty much shut down. There was a period of time where artists actually could kind of organize and talk about the harms in the industry that they were facing. They hadn't really had a period to step back, and we saw members of various organizations that were built up at that time wanting to organize and kind of address Ticketmaster's power. So we, along with other wonderful coalition members put together um, this, this coalition, Breakup Ticketmaster. And the goal was really to get letters sent to the Department of Justice, asking them to break up the company. Okay. Very simple now this must, be, this must be pretty expensive to hire lawyers and staff to manage a campaign like this. Like, how are you funded? Uh, well, we're, we, we don't have lawyers and staff for the coalition. Like, I'm, okay. it, it's all just members from various organizations, nonprofit gotcha. organizations. Yeah. So we're okay. not funded with any corporate dollars. Some of our coalition members are, um, and some of them actually have kind of different perspectives on how to regulate the industry, which is why we have the very simple ask of break it up. Because once you get farther than that, you know, some of the artists' voices say we actually want stipulations around X, Y, Z, while the ticketing coalition members want something else. So Right, right. And so what's the reaction thus far from the campaign? Like, can you give us a little bit of, you know, the, the numbers and just, you know, general reaction from artists and fans to this fight? Yeah, you know, early on, we were excited and we did not see even close to the numbers that we saw after Taylor Swift. Okay. So we had uh, you know, a couple thousand letters sent in and we were really kind of proud of that just because it was a small organization that we were putting together this movement. And then the Taylor Swift situation happened and we have now reached over 50,000 letters. Whoa, so, so the, yeah. the Swifty army bolstered your ranks quite a bit. Absolutely, yeah. So, Krista, I think it would be helpful if our listeners could get some background on Ticketmaster and how they became so powerful, and maybe a little bit of background on 
on the merger uh, with Live Nation as well. So could you explain the you know, building blocks of, of Ticketmaster and how they came to wield so much power? Yeah. So Ticketmaster was started back in the late 70s. Uh, and starting kind of in the in the 80s, it became a very dominant player in ticketing, in live event ticketing. And they had one main competitor, Ticketron, which was the actually the, the largest player at the time in the 80s, but it was pretty archaic. And it, you know, it was settled in its ways of doing business, wasn't really innovating, while Ticketmaster, on the other hand, was very ready to kind of assert itself in in the market. And so they came up with a model of, we're going to actually pay venues to use our service and have fees that the customers will pay for to allow us to do that. Previously, Ticketron had said, you know, we're not going to, they're, they're going to pay us for the service. And so venues immediately wanted to switch and Ticketron quickly lost market share and then was, was bought. Um, that, that merger was looked at by the Department of Justice with antitrust issues, but it was not blocked. And again, you know, we saw that in 2009, but for the period of really 20 years, but we'll say the 10 years in the 90s, Ticketmaster was never afraid of competition. They had at least in, you know, articles written from Chicago Tribune to LA Times, roughly 90% of the market share. It's actually even more than they have now. And they were pretty abusive in the ways that they wielded their power. Back when Pearl Jam kind of went up against mm-hmm. them in 1994, they um, they threatened saying, you know, we're going to shut off our ticketing service at certain venues if you don't agree to our terms. And we're going to cut back on the number of tickets you have through your fan base. So you know, normally they do an allocation and the artists get like roughly 9%. But they, they knew they didn't actually have to uh, kind of negotiate because they had all the negotiating power. I see. So, and that and that dominance really came first from the innovation of changing changing the tick yeah. changing ticketing from a, a cost center for the venues yeah. to a profit center for, yeah. for the venues and and ultimately for the promoters and the, the artists as well. Yeah. And um, you know, there are a lot of venues that tried to resist it because they saw that it it kind of shifted the power dynamic and they very quickly had no other choice because Ticketmaster would say, or at least since 2009, has the ability to say, you will not get any Live Nation artist or the promoters that we work with, you will not get any of the tours they're uh, running if you don't agree to our ticketing service. Right. So so if Pearl Jam or whoever else goes to one of these stadiums and says, you know, I don't want to use Ticketmaster, those stadiums will just come back to say, well, I'm sorry, but I have an exclusive five-year contract with them. And because all of the big uh, venues have this uh, five-year or whatever exclusive relationship, basically all the big artists at least are shut out of going down any other route besides using Ticketmaster because because the Live Nation covers almost all of the big venues. Is that correct? That's correct. And they, you know, they had exclusivity with Live Nation starting at least in 1990, their contracts. So before they merged, really for 20 years, they were solely each other's business partner. Um, And then once you reach 2009, what happened there, it's kind of interesting. Live Nation thought about running a competitive ticketing service. And they, in 2008, 
said they were going to terminate their contract with Ticketmaster, which of course freaked out Ticketmaster. And they bought Frontline Management, Azoff's artist management company that ran, you know, Maroon 5 and all these big names. So they were kind of like sparring, figuring out who had more power and then Hmm. came to the decision that let's just merge. We don't have Mm -hmm. to compete at all and we'll run the whole thing. That's what happened. Interesting. So you have a form on your site that collects examples of harms that artists or industry professionals have incurred. Can you give any example, tangible examples of, you know, violations to the consent decree rules or evidence that they were behaving monopolistically? Yeah, so we that form goes directly to agencies. So I do not see those submissions. It's intentionally anonymous just because there is an investigation going on. Okay. But we have heard from people, you know, publicly speaking out. I, I was on an episode with NPR uh, about two months ago where a uh, ticketing service, Western Ticks um, or Midwestern Ticks, actually was the the woman who ran it was willing to speak out and say, we were offering half the price to a venue for a local concert in her uh, in her town. And the venue obviously had every incentive to go with them. It was supporting a local business. They had a personal relationship and it was cheaper, but the venue wouldn't do it. They said, we have to go with Ticketmaster because otherwise we're not going to get any of their tours in the future. Mm. And they, whether or not it was explicitly told to them from Live Nation. Back in 2019, the Live Nation did have to agree to an additional, basically, guardrail. It's legally, it's called a consent decree saying you will not retaliate against venues because they were found in violation of doing that for the prior 10 years where they merged and had already agreed to not do that. But there was one document that was released basically saying um, a venue was going to use AEG and Live Nation was emailing with them saying the issue is a three-letter like subject or something along the lines that was very obviously AEG without them typing it out in an email. So they, you know, they were found violating it and they've had to agree to these terms again until 2025. But I don't think too much will change. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think so. We, I think we get the background here. Um, Ticketmaster plus Live Nation merges, and you you've created this super powerhouse. Um, maybe you could bring us up to now present day. You know, as I said in the introduction, many people have had a run at. Ticketmaster and had their hats handed to them. <laughs> and yes. they've been extremely adept at um, fighting off any any kind of uh, threats to their to their business. You know, what's the current state of the battle? And you know, maybe why why is why is now any any different? Yeah, so there are a few reasons that I remain slightly hopeful. You know, I will say that with a grain of salt because it has been such a failed enforcement. Uh, saga thus far for decades. But uh, one, the number one reason I'm pretty optimistic is the leadership in antitrust right now. Uh, Jonathan Cantor is the head of the Department of Justice, and he is a really strong antitrust enforcer that has come out as a leader in kind of reframing issues of harms. It's no longer about higher prices to consumers. It's about how is this harming fair competition in the market? So He is looking at harms to artists. He is looking at harms to venues, to potential competing services. And that's pretty new. Otherwise, we've really had this theory of consumer welfare, which is if prices aren't going up, 
although they are in this situation. Uh, yeah, that's the confusing thing because I get it. <laughs> no. Okay, like if Google is giving me free search, it's kind of hard to argue that the cost to the consumer is punitive. Mm-hmm. But if Ticketmaster is charging me these exorbitant fees, that's a pretty obvious one. So, so why why has that never been sufficient? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I, I mean, I, I do have some answers to that. I think I wrote a, a long form piece with a colleague, Mo Tachik about the, the situation of Pearl Jam, where there was actually a lot of corruption going on back then in the nineties, where Ticketmaster had kind of infiltrated a lot of the government bodies that were supposed to be regulating. Their head lobbyist was, uh, connected to Phil Graham, a senator that at one point was was deciding appropriations for the DOJ. And then um, there there are a few other details in there around their connections to the DOJ and Bingaman, the the head of the DOJ antitrust, which is concerning. You know, I I can't, there's no written document. It's all kind of a smoking gun, but though there isn't a smoking gun, but, um, but that's one reason potentially in the 90s. Then in 2009, there was just very, very little enforcement in general in antitrust. Mm. It was super light touch saying, we'll tell you, and they did, they said, divest this tiny niche service you have to Comcast. It did nothing. It did not create a competitor. It's now a college sports ticketing service. But they they just kind of said, let's not mess with the market. The market maybe knows better than us as regulators. And that's very new. Jonathan Cantor is not, you know, he's not that way. He's not afraid to bring suits. Um, and then same with Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission, both of them. Right. Now, now these people that you, you speak about, I mean, they're, they've, they've probably got a big, um, portfolio in front of them from questions about Apple's app store dominance to, uh, Amazon to Google to Facebook, you know, big tech has has over this period, as you as you reference, um, consolidated a lot of power, and maybe some of these other issues, you could argue, maybe more important or just prescient, you know, in the public mind. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think that the Ticketmaster file, you know, will? will bubble to the top of the list or will get stuck behind, you know, all these other huge, huge, huge issues that they're probably looking at. Honestly, I really think it's going to be pretty high up in their priority list. And I probably because of Taylor Swift. (laughs) Probably someone for sure. Thanks Swifties. Yeah. But they, you know, the, the investigation that was released is likely something going on quite a bit longer than the Taylor Swift saga if they were willing to announce it at that time or not announce it, but, you know, have it, it, it was leaked at, to some degree. And so um, I think that it was something they were looking into for a while. And it's really shameful, actually, that they haven't done anything to this point. So I I believe that there will be something we hear about soon enough. Hopefully it's a, a pretty strong lawsuit, but um at the very least, I think the hearings from Amy Klobuchar that, you know, she's running point on that. And then the Energy and Commerce Committee will likely spur some more momentum there. Hmm. And so you think that, you know, there's lots of remedies that could come out of this, like, uh, you know, more behavioral requirements or consent decrees, as you say, or there could be a full on, you know, break them up. You know, what what do you think is the likelihood that, that that's in fact what would happen? 
So kind of this actually to backtrack on one of the things you brought up very early on about if a breakup actually even makes sense. Um, I think a breakup is very important because it the combination of concert promoters with the ticketing service allows this very kind of uh, untethered power over artists, the entire touring scene and uh, us as as consumers. But it also um, it also allows them into these exclusivity terms that they don't really have to negotiate around. So once you break, in my mind, once you break up those two companies and probably also the artist management companies that they run, you would need to put some restrictions on exclusivity terms anyways, in addition. So maybe Ticketmaster can't sign exclusivity for 10 years with any venue just to allow some sort of competing or competing service into the market. So I do think it's, you know, we're asking for this seemingly basic or simple demand from from regulators of breaking it up, but more would probably need to go on top. In terms of what's realistic coming out of that, I think it's totally dependent on the judge. You know, we've seen a lot of a lot of judges more comfortable with the behavioral remedies, but I would be very sad if it weren't a breakup because I don't think that's going to fundamentally change the structure of the market, which is needed in this case. Hmm. That, that, I think, partially addresses my next point here. And just playing devil's advocate, there is an argument that breaking up Ticketmaster isn't really going to fix the problems. Yeah. You know, the argument kind of goes something like, the reason why scalpers exist in the first place is resale values are so high, the artists aren't, you know, really charging market rates in the first place. So, you know, any economist will tell you the price of the ticket is what people will will pay for it. And the artists don't necessarily want to be the fall guy for this, right? They don't want to look greedy, so they list their tickets for less than market rates. And then, you know, scalpers normally in the old days would jump in and exploit the difference between the supply and demand and the scalpers would get compensated for it. Whereas, you know, with, with this model here, with these service fees are actually getting split amongst the people that are actually creating the creating the art or the the promoters the venues people that are that are involved in the production of these shows right and yeah. so ticketmaster kind of takes the heat but aren't really the primary cause of these high prices and breaking it up wouldn't actually do anything to address this so how how, how do well, you respond to that you know Pearl Jam's blood would be boiling at listening to you say that because they certainly want. To I don't want to piss off Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to I make their tour affordable, yeah. you know. And then yeah. we see people like Zach Bryan, yeah. some some very outspoken artists who are really fundamentally trying to keep their tours affordable. And it's not they still make money, um, mm-hmm. you know, to their credit. And it's it's because of their popularity. So if they were much smaller, they might not. Um, but. I think again, it's you know it's their art, so they should be the ones determining, and it's, it's kind of a ticketmaster talking point to say we're taking the fall because artists get faced with this choice of either you agree to dynamic pricing, which is what mm-hmm. happened, it, it happens with a lot of them, and they say if demand goes up, maybe you could just ex- explain dynamic pricing. Yeah, so dynamic pricing is this model where not all tickets are the same price, and as demand goes up the ticket price goes up. Uh, you can generally put a cap. Artists can say, we don't want it to exceed X number, but we're comfortable with it going to that height. And there has been a lot of backlash from fans 
saying, you know, Bruce Springsteen, you always said your tours would be affordable and you're letting your prices go up to like a thousand some dollars per ticket. So that's, that is kind of the, the issue now for artists to face a decision of, do we agree to dynamic pricing, which allows them to get a higher, uh, kind of like a, a higher margin of what tickets are sold for because it's all on primary or do we say no all primary tickets will be this cheaper cost but we know so many tickets go to the secondary market and we get none of that profit and what's frustrating for me whenever i hear ticketmaster saying we're just taking the fall is that they give them this this horrible decision which is like either you don't make money as much money as we are going to make we're going to make money on primary secondary as the ticketing service for both in many instances um and you just allow to kind of let go of all of that revenue or you get some of it, but it's not to the prices that you originally wanted your tickets to be for. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, just to be clear, I was playing devil's advocate <laughs> I know, there. I know. I, and, you know, I had to caveat it with that. But, you know, there there also are, you know, a couple of well-known, um, you know, instances where Justin Bieber, for example, appeared to be scalping his own holds on yeah. secondary markets um, Metallica, and I think. Metallica, yeah. and I think a dozen other artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if they were named, but allegedly asked uh, Live Nation to yeah. sell tickets on the secondary market for them. So yeah. it seems like sometimes they can be part of the problem as well. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. at other times, artists might be, you know, it, it, the artists themselves are kind of, you know, the ultimate monopoly because there's only, there's only one Drake. There's only one Taylor Swift. There's only one well, Metallica. Well, I've, I've heard as well, and I don't know if this is accurate, but that sometimes uh, I, I heard read one article that suggested that only maybe 10% of the sale tickets actually go on the primary sale. So when mm. the, the, the concert opens up for tickets, you would assume it's the opposite, that 90% of the available tickets are being sold. This article was suggesting that it's often very less than that, but sometimes even as low as 10%. And that the 90% is going through these other, going directly to the artists who then sell them on secondaries or other vehicles. And so the fans are really participating for the smaller chunk. Is that is that accurate? That I don't know about that percentage breakdown. I have definitely heard of instances where, you know, not 100% of the tickets for sure are going on primary. Some of them are going to the kind of set aside fan club model for artists that's generally like five to eight percent and then also there have been many instances in which live nation will redirect uh, a lot of their tickets or, or fans to the secondary site without posting the ticket on the primary site and they were fined for that by the federal trade commission back in 2009 because i think it was a bruce springsteen uh tour that all the tickets were were kind of initially being they were claiming that they were on the primary and then fans would go to the primary site, see like there is no availability, click here for secondary and Live Nation also owned uh, Tickets Now, the second largest secondary site and they just made a ton of money on that. But no artist made the end of that. That was not for mm-hmm. the artist's benefit. And double dipped on all the service fees too. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, really fascinating stuff and looking forward to, you know, continuing to to monitor this space and see what your organization is doing. Um, as someone who buys a fair amount of concert tickets and 
feels like I'm I'm being hosed all the time. So, uh, Krista, we also like to ask uh, our guests if they have a, a music recommendation. So, can you give us something to put on our guest picks playlist? Yeah, I, you know, hopefully you'll allow me to give two because I have two. One of them is Lawrence the Band, which they, you know, they are super fans uh, of a lot of efforts around artist rights and they just released an op-ed actually a month ago about the monopoly issues of the industry, but their music is incredible. The mid-sized band, they are like some of the most fun people to see live. It's a brother and sister duo singing and then they've got, yeah, great live music. Um, the other one, which I will say is, um, is Lore L, L-A-U-R space E-L-L-E. And she's, she just released an album this past summer and her numbers just never make sense to me. She does not have the viewer count. She should, she's super talented. Um, so both of those, uh, artists. And then I know you guys also often ask about how people find new music, which I was thinking about how to answer that. And I have a great answer, I think, which is this new incubator called Salt Lake Sessions that is, um, it's based out of Boston. Uh, and, they give grants to artists, pretty small artists, kind of helping them produce video footage of, of singles that goes on a YouTube channel. And they have some really, really talented people. Lawrence was on there, but then, you know, Tiny Habits, Lizzie McAlpin, pretty, pretty small, but um, noteworthy artists. So that's a good place to go. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. We maybe we should get Salt Lake sessions on the show. That's, that yeah. sounds, that's really interesting. And, uh, We'll uh, g- definitely give Lawrence the band and Laurel uh, some listens and put something from there, maybe one from each on our on our playlist. Thanks for that. Finally, if our listeners want to um, follow you or get in touch with you or follow the uh, the work that you're doing, where's the best place they should go? Um, for me, probably Twitter, which I think it's just Krista K. Brown. Um, and then for the movement, uh, breakupticketmaster.com com i believe i don't think it's org they that's the place for our latest on the coalition movement um but feel free to reach out to me on email which is kbrown at economicliberties.us if you have any interest in kind of giving us insights to industry harms or anything else great well thanks so much for being on the show today krista it was really interesting thanks krista thank you for having me you've been listening to beat seeker with your hosts matt mcbutter and mike wider If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, leave us a rating and a comment and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to dig deeper into this content, visit BeatSeeker.fm. That's B-E-A-T Seeker.fm. Interact with us on social media at BeatSeekerPod. BeatSeeker is recorded in the Devil Lake Studios and the Tunnel Under Arundel. The show is produced by Matt McButter, Mike Wider, and Kate McCartney. Thanks for tuning in, and keep seeking.